All right, today we have Lieutenant Colonel David Fowler with us from our state G3. He has taken time out of his day to come talk with us about 9-11 and where he was and how he was involved in that situation. So, sir, thank you for taking time, and we'd love to, to hear your story about where you were and what, what happened to you around 9-11. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, and unique story for me, um, I was a young strapping lieutenant back in uh, early 2000 uh, stationed in Germany as a tank platoon leader in 1-1 Cav that was in Budigen, Germany which has now been closed down and turned over to the Germans. Um, so I'd only been in Germany for less than a year uh, when 9-11 happened and it was kind of a unique take for us because that unfortunate day we you only have AFN over in Germany, so you don't have any TV, no live coverage or anything. And you're plus you're about six and a half hours ahead of uh, East, Eastern Coast time. So at the time I was working in the uh, S3 shop for 1-1 Cav, and the 1-1 Cav was the uh, reconnaissance squadron for our 1st Armored Division, stationed out of the 4th Brigade Combat Team. So. I was just simply sitting at my desk on that fateful day of 9-11, uh, working on some stuff for squadron commander, um, and AFN kind of broke in that there had been reports of a plane had hit the World Trade Center. Um, they didn't elaborate on how big the plane was or anything, it was just a plane that hit. And at first thought, I was simply thinking maybe a small Cessna or some little small plane just didn't get altitude and just hit the World Trade Center. Uh, but about 10 to 15 minutes later, as more development started coming in through AFN, because they could watch the prime news networks, uh, CNN and Fox News, they um, realized then it was a much bigger plane that hit the World Trade Center, and then another one hit. And then more reports started coming in um, that the Pentagon had hit, been hit by an airplane. And so by that point, we didn't really know what was going on. Um, you got to realize it's still about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Soldiers are now starting to go home. From our from our from the concern, and it turned into um, everybody was saying now the World Trade Centers have collapsed. We granted, I still have not seen pictures of any of this. I can only just imagine what the chaotic scene was going on in New York City that day. Um, but the phone calls then started coming into our squadron from the division headquarters and the brigade. Um, and usually you don't get a call directly from division. In this case, yes, we were getting calls directly from the division to uh, basically state that there was a declared emergency on our concerns in Europe and then to start taking immediate actions to increase our ramp measures. Um, and for the folks at home, not sure what a ramp measure is, is when you're at steady state, you're like at Redcon Alpha or at Force Protection Alpha, random car searches, uh, gate guards let most people in. But when you're then and now 24 hours going from force protection alpha up to force condition, force uh, protection delta, you have specific measures at delta where you are no longer training anymore. We are now doing 100% force protection of the soldiers and their families. And Germany's a little more unique than stateside bases because you might have a concern that just houses the administration and the office buildings the soldiers work at but the housing areas might be across the road, it might be down the street, so they're not guarded for the most part. Um, there are some wires and fences, but we're now having to take drastic measures to take platoons out of their training rotations 
and putting them on a 24-hour guard rotation at family housing areas. So um, let me back up just one quick second. That night, I unfortunately got, uh, was a spare lieutenant floating around G3 shop, and they said, Fowler, you're going to be the staff duty officer for the night. And I had never had so many phone calls come throughout the, uh, through the landline all night long asking where we were on our route measures, how are we standing up, where we were doing everything. And it was a extremely long night. My two E4s that were with me, bless their hearts, they, they were dead by, by that morning. Literally one of them had fallen asleep. He was so exhausted. Um, and I got off of work that morning about 10 hundred hours before I was relieved by another lieutenant. And I went home on September 12th to my uh, off post uh, apartment. And I didn't try to go in the next day because I started seeing and hearing rumors of how bad the car lines were trying to get in on post. Because like I said, we had now gone to force protection delta. Every car searched, every person searched. And if you can imagine 6.30 people trying to get in for PT, now your line is two miles long, but all the cars trying to get into a concern, and it was just a complete nightmare for us that uh, first few days we tried to sort everything out. And force protection delta was even more weird because you had certain measures in there that you would never see. Um, we had to put armed guards on our uh, school buses uh, to protect school children in Germany. Uh, we had even measures to Constantina wire the squadron commander's house to keep people from coming in because uh, we just did not know what was going on uh, other than America had been attacked, we're out of state emergency, we don't know kind of where these attacks came from and so we're in reactionary mode for these next few days and once things kind of quieted down we did ramp off from Bravo but we only went down to Charlie so you're still at a high state of alert uh, for the most part and I was not sure exactly what the National Guard was doing at this time, but I will really kind of lead this into where how we started seeing the National Guardsmen coming into what what I will find out later on would be called Noble, Operation Noble Eagle for our soldiers. Um, so when we're at Charlie, we're a dedicated security force. You have your red, amber, green cycles on military installations, uh, green for training, amber, you're doing specific. Uh, non-duty but you can do some other side training and red you're on a duty cycle to guard concerns whatever on the post so every three weeks you know I got you know you got three companies of battalion or three three battalions in a brigade so one week one's green then your amber and green you keep rotating and you're pulling platoons out on your red cycle to guard housing areas and it's not just one housing area it was five or six uh, housing areas because I mean they're spread all over Germany and so we are Literally taking platoon to go here to do uh, force protection measures, guard and secure uh, the housing areas. They would literally pull four hours on, four hours off, 24 hour shifts. Here's your weapon, here's your ammo, you count the bullets in, you count the bullets out, and you sleep on the post, they bring food to you, you are not, that's, that's your duty, it's guarding the people. The problem that the compo one or active duty has with doing these type of cycles at that rate is you cannot do collective training anymore. So for eight months, we're doing these kind of measures and the, the readiness of our army was starting to really drastically drop because training had dropped off. So the, what I understand now is that they needed to find a way to relieve the pressure off of Compo 1 to start preparing to fight wars. So 
you know, obviously in October of 2011, we had already started going into Afghanistan. So that operation had started. And about six months later, then the talk of OIF started coming up. And, you know, General Powell making the case, as he was Secretary of State, I think, at the time, making the case for going into Iraq, invading Iraq, their, their harbor of terrorism as well. So we needed to find a way to train as an active duty unit. And because we couldn't even shoot our tank gunneries anymore because we could not get down to Grafenbeer in Germany to shoot without not being able to do red cycle back in the rear. So the Army decided to tell NGB, we need soldiers to come guard our concerns so the active duty can then be relieved of the red cycle and start doing some more training to get prepared for um, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I'm not sure what the war plans were. Uh, obviously, at the, we do know that basically the first, the third ID and the first, I think, first male from Marines uh, were the two units that divisions that kind of went into Iraq. But we were planning to, um, as a first armed division, be part of that initial push since the division was considered a forward deployed division of the United States since they were stationed in Germany in Europe. So they were prepared. We started our train-ups doing hole and fells, gunnery rotations, everything else, and I would say that would have been um, probably about November of 2012. I mean, or November of 2002, we started really ramping up to get ready to go in there. And by January of 2003, we had our orders that we were going to mobilize into Iraq. And Third ID had the orders they were going to start sending soldiers to Kuwait and wrapping up the forces that were sitting um, in Iraq. And given Saddam Hussein, his ultimatums stand down, let us in, let the inspectors in uh, to look at your facilities. And he was doing his pushback and all that stuff. And Della finally came, I think, in April of 2003. He did not do meet the mandate set so forth by the United States. So that's when I think in two, April 2003, you did see the third ID then initiate their push into Iraq and start their um, their efforts to remove Saddam Hussein from power. So now I'm at the point where uh, First Armed Division is watching AFN, watching third ID. We're all pouty-faced. We're, we're sad. We're, we're soldiers. We want, we've been training now for a year to go fight. Um, but let me once again back up. So Noble Eagle is now kicking off. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, Noble, that's it, okay. that's National fine. Guard soldiers are now coming <laughs> we sh in. The National Guard are showing up. So right. National Guard are now coming in to guard the concerns in the United States. Um, matter of fact, we had a Kentucky National Guard group come in from um, to guard Freiburg, Germany, Gießen, Germany, uh, some of the bigger concerns that were over there. Um, so. The, the point I'm, I wanted to make was nobly was a result of the, the Compo 1 Act duty could not train. So they had to bring in the Compo 2 National Guard soldiers to take over that force protection mission, and they did a wonderful job. Uh, they were excited to be in Germany because, okay, I'm going to be on 24 hours, I'm off 24 hours. It's really not that bad of, a, bad of an ordeal. Um, even when I got off active duty and joined the um, South Carolina National Guard and the 263rd Armored Battalion, uh, they had just came off of Noble Eagle, I think, in August of 2004, September 2004, so somewhere in that timeline. I was still not part of the Guard at that time. But it, it was kind of comical when my second drill in, in, of, in the Guard was November of 2004, and I being tasked by my company commander to support this Noble Eagle what, Yellow Ribbon event. And I'm like, what's, what's Yellow Noble Eagle, first of all? And we're, we're, 
where did all this come from? So it was a it was a lot of learning experiences for me. It was a good learning experience to see the soldiers. They had been away from their families just like anybody else. It's um, supporting a mission, a, a definite need at the time for the guardsmen to uh, do the noble legal events, wherever they were at Fort Jackson, Fort Stewart, overseas, it just depending on wherever they got called to. Um, they did a wonderful job, and it really helped out other people getting ready to deploy and do their other missions. So I'm going to kick back now to 2003 when I got deployed. In okay. May of 2003, the 1st Armed Division was deployed to um, Iraq, and the 3rd ID just did a phenomenal job, just wiped through Saddam's forces. It really wasn't much of a fight. You know, we all saw the newscasts as they went up through uh, Baghdad and secured everything. And so we were just sitting in Kuwait, got our tanks in from Germany, built our combat power, put them on head trucks, bust everything up to Baghdad. We off-ramped that um, uh, Modern's Monument where the cross swords were up in the green zone. Didn't even know where we were staying at, just going off the whim for the most part. We go to this place for our brigade called Modern's Monument. It's on Route Pluto in the north part of Baghdad. I met the 3rd ID Brigade there, talked with them a little bit. And they were just ready to go home. They were beat down. They were tired. Hey, we're just, we've done our part. We're ready to high-five you guys. Y'all take over. Um, kind of here's where our sectors are, and see you later. And they just took <laughs> off. And so we were left basically trying to find homes to live in. You got a, you know, you got a whole brigade or division sitting over there and not knowing where the bad sectors were, what was kind of going on. We just know there's no no police force, there's no civilian structure going on, there's no infrastructure working right now. Everything had just been completely gutted out by the civilians as 3rd ID pushed through, you know, government collapsed, it was a free-for-all for about a month, and then we're having to now restore order back to a lot of these districts. So we, um, we literally just took land in Baghdad. We just selected these places, okay, this battalion is going to go over to this place called Baghdad Island. We're going to have another battalion go over to Baghdad University. Saddam's got these really nice palaces and a lot of grounds. We're going to send battalions all over these to these places to stand up. So the battalions at, out of each brigade were kind of still independently operating from each other, just like in Germany. Uh, we, we're used to it, but it's still kind of stumped because you have your brigade 20 miles away. you got to drive up and down Route Pluto, Route Irish, wherever you need to go to get to the Green Zone, to Biop. It was, it was a mess. Um, but the Iraqis still could not govern themselves at the time. And I think this is when we made a lot of mistakes in Iraq early on. Um, when you had the, the, the secretaries trying to decide, okay, the Ba'ath Party was evil. Let's take them out of power. The Ba'ath, you have to sign a waiver. You cannot be a part of this new government we're going to be standing up in, in Iraq. So now you're alienating almost half the population right off the bat. And they lost their pensions, they had no funds, they had no jobs, they didn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, we, we trained to go to war. We didn't train to run governments how to do what we call CERT projects, where you rebuild a, uh, a sewage treatment plant or a water treatment plant. So we were going off the cuff as well. We didn't, we were just simply were not trained to do this stuff as soldiers. So you have these young company commanders, these young battalion commanders. Oh, by the way, about a stop loss up to this point. Yeah. And finally they snapped the button. Okay, stop loss, stop moves lifted. A lot of these commanders who had trained their soldiers up through 2002, 2003 just, were, just left out and went to 
basically division staff or somewhere, brigade staff, and these new commanders came in, new platoon leaders, new battalion commanders, new brigade commanders. It was it was crazy. So you had this whole new influence sphere of, of philosophy set up right in June of 2003. This is how we're going to do things, guys. Okay, just going to have another look. It was, even in my time, three new company commanders, a new battalion commander, new squad um, sergeant major, new op sergeant major, new S3, new XO. Um, all my buddies were now basically leaving out and going back stateside to do their captain's career course. I'm like the only one left of the old guys in the battalion in my platoon sergeants. And it was a crazy time. And a lot of, a lot of figuring out how to, how to govern ourselves over there. Um, we weren't being shot at from early on in May, of, May to August 2003. It's just... The Iraqis were trying to figure themselves out. The Americans were trying to figure out what we're going to be doing over there. So it was kind of like it's kind of a stalemate going on. Um, but the, the tension was starting to build up. You could you could see that the the civilians they wanted power. They didn't have power plants working because they raided it and gutted it out. And now you strip all the copper out of a plant, you can't turn the power back on. Dumping all their sewage out in the streets because they got no running sewage anymore. They killed all the pumps and there's no power to run the pumps. So. It, it's become this garbled mess in, in, this, in, in Baghdad. And I'm sure Fallujah and these other cities were kind of going through similar problems as well. Um, I can already speak from just what I saw in, in, in Baghdad. And so I was moved to a um, staff duty officer for the night shift and day shift, wherever they needed me. So I started seeing all the reports coming in. I could see what Alpha Company was doing, what Bravo was doing, what Charlie, this is the projects we're trying to do. I sat through all the bugs, heard everything every morning, every night. And so up to about August of 2003, okay, so the IEDs were not a factor at that time. We could kind of ride around where we wanted to. We might get pop shots at us every now and then, but okay, it's, you just push through it and just keep going on with your day. As long as nobody's hit, it's, it's okay, gotcha. We know where you are, marking on the map. We'll keep a little more vigilance next time we come through here. Um, but we were, treat, we were trying to treat any kind of laying around bombs, if it was a mortar round or a uh, 155 round missiles, rockets. I mean, big rockets were sitting out in these places, these old military bases. Anybody can go into them. Can't touch it, can't pick it up, mark it as uh, unexploded ordnance, UXOs. Put on a map, give the EOD, that EOD come pick it up. So that sounded okay at the time. Yeah, I don't know anything about mortars or 155s. Maybe it'd go off on me. I don't want to touch it. But in hindsight, this Iraqis started picking all this stuff up and cacheting them, so they disappeared. We'd mark them, well, it's not there. EODs walk on, do it the merry way because they couldn't, they're not gonna spend a lot of time looking for it. But we just did not know what the Iraqis were doing with it until um, August of 2003 when we first started seeing these first root IEDs start popping up. Um, when I say root, literally. A bomb would be on the side of the road. We would think it would be a UXO, but no, lo and behold, it was actually wired up and would explode on our soft skin Humvees. Mm. We weren't up armored. Yeah. We we had our tanks, but we didn't roll our tanks out a whole lot just because it was easier to do mobility in a city inside of a Humvee versus a you know seventy-two ton tank or a Bradley rolling down the street. <laughs> yeah, and they're hard in, in traffic jams. Traffic was atrocious in Baghdad, and it's yeah, a tank can push a car out of the way, but you don't want to run the people over inside of it either. So. You, we had to be flexible in where we pushed our tanks to. And most of that was just reserved for our QRLs if something would happen. Um, so these IEDs started going off about October, August to October of 2003. And, and if they did a direct hit on our soft skin Humvees, it was, it was just catastrophic to the people inside because 
you know, we, we might have had these IBAs on, but I might have had a small plate and a large IBA because just that's all the Army had to give us. Um, it's those were the first few severe IED hits that I started seeing, and, and we lost a few of our soldiers through some IEDs. Um, like one of them was placed on a bridge overpass on Route Pluto, and we're for six months, you're thinking that'd be a good place to place an IED, and then of course nobody's checking them, and then lo and behold, they do put an IED up there, exposed on our Humvee, and it kills one of our soldiers. One thing we can do is constantly wire off, rotate, and then tell the engineers to go bulldoze down that crosswalk. But then now you're taking away something from the civilians. You're still making them you're alienating civilians again. You're making them mad because you're doing something they don't want to happen. And, and there's no give or take between the civilians. Um, our idea of taking care of Iraq by this time in October was create the ICDC, the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, um, the predecessors to the police and to a little bit of the army. Just let's get some security, come tell us if something's wrong. They wore blue shirts, had this little dark blue eye band on, so ICDC and American and Arabic. And they would get paid a little bit of money to just kind of keep the peace. They weren't formal policemen, but just some security to show the Iraqi civilian population that we were trying to do something. And then it would lead on up into the Iraqi police force, the Iraqi army was starting to build up at this time. But, and Al Sadr was also in his uh, area um, in Northwest Iraq. Um, people don't know what Sadr city is. It's kind of a, it was a large, I don't want to say a slum, but it was a population, an area built for the lower class Iraqi people uh, who lived in Baghdad. And it's very congested, very crowded, uh, very dense population. And Al Sadr was the um, primary mullah of the area for the, the uh, I think the Shiite Muslims over there. Anti-American rhetoric, people follow that. Yeah, America's bad. We're just not getting what we want. We don't know what we need. Um, and we had a, we had a common plan to go puck solder and get him out of there because we didn't like what he was saying because um, these comm plans had us guarding specific sectors because we knew if we ever you know Delta Force go in puck solder and get them out of there population is going to get really ticked off and they're going to start going through the streets of Baghdad and, and rioting and so we have blocking positions. Um, so now you see solder and his uprising starting in, in October. And this is when we also, I want to say we had our first National Guard unit um, over there with us. They were the Florida National Guard and Infantry Battalion uh, uh, assigned to us. They were getting hit pretty hard in their sector in uh, December. Um, we started getting hit pretty hard through December through April. Um, IDs were becoming more complicated by this time. We still didn't have a whole lot of means to defeat them. All we could say, okay, let's try to do the up armored Humvee. You know, everybody, even the Guardian is strapping on any kind of scrap metal they can find, waiting down their Humvees, just trying to get some protection for the soldiers. Um, and but you know, it's, a, it's a cat and mouse game with 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 weapons. Sometimes the enemy does this, we'll do this, and yeah. we'll do that to find and defeat it. And so you're constantly going back and forth. And you know, I never went back to Iraq after this. I know some soldiers have done multiple deployments, and I'm sure they could see the, the sophistication of the IEDs. No longer was it a doorbell ringer trying to set off a, off of a an IED. It was you know IR infrared. You know, the cell phone signals got more complicated, and 
and so we're trying to jam cell phone signals we're trying to do whatever we can to defeat IEDs and it's it was it was interesting to see that 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 evolution of IEDs and I'm sure as it caught on Iraq it went down to Afghanistan because the IEDs in Afghanistan were totally different than what you saw in Iraq Afghanistan were pressure plate IEDs because um, it's dirt roads in Afghanistan more so than asphalt roads in Iraq, and Iraq was more developed than Afghanistan, so they could, you know, hide the IED in a concrete um, curbside and explode it as you ride by. Oh, we're going to create standoff distance on these IEDs now, so you can't come get us because they want to put two canals between us and where we are and, and where you are, so you're not even going to see us most of the time. Um, and that was. That was probably the most scariest part of Iraq uh, for any soldier, I think, who participated in OIF was as these evolutions of, of IEDs happened, you, you were constantly on your alert as soon as you rolled out the gate because you know that there could be a, a, a bomb anywhere on any route you were going down. And, and I'm sure most soldiers were not joking around when they say they got back home. They were still for next month watching the side of the road as they drove down the road because that's your your instincts were so high at that time, keeping just look for anything. That pile of trash looks weird. I'm gonna go over there and check it out. And sure enough, there'll be an IED sitting inside that. So your spider senses start tingling pretty good, and you and the soldiers do a good job of you know just you know that sixth sense kicking in. Something something's not right. So they'll tell the convoy commander to stop. Let's check something out. And the the U.S. even did our own measures. You know, we got the MRAPs over there, and so well, I've got to, you got to have your vehicle. We're just going to make a foreign projectile and shoot at your vehicle. Now, knock it out. It does. Uh, EFPs. And oh, by the way, these things catch on fire when they go through. So now, you, the soldiers got to start wearing protective clothing and their Nomaxes, aviation Nomaxes, or an armor Nomax. I'm an empty soldier. I don't want to wear a Nomax. I want to wear my BDUs. Now, you're going to get burned up. You got to wear. You know, your fractures then start coming out because we need flame retardant stuff. So it's always evolution start going on. And it, it's interesting to see what a, what a country will, will go through through 19 years of conflict and how we've modernized our army for 19 years uh, to meet the needs of um, what we fought. But I was um, say that I did leave Iraq. Um, we thought we were going to leave Iraq in April of 2004. No, Sadr did his uprising. Now you've got 1st Infantry Division, 1st Armored Division, 1st Cav Division are all in Iraq at this time, three divisions. Um, 1st Armored Division's kind of worn out. We've been there for a year. 1st uh, Infantry is sent in several brigades uh, from Germany as well. 1st Cav from Fort Hood. Um, I want to say even probably 2nd ACR was, uh, was there as, uh, in, in Iraq. So now you got a ticked off population because nothing's happened. We've tried to stand up the Army in 2004. Through their own weapons, literally walk across the road and start shooting back at you because Sauter said, attack the Americans. So in May of April and May of 04, that was the big push that Sauter has done his uprising. That probably set Iraq back in the reconstruction of Iraq two or three years. And all that led into the surge through 2007, 2008, to try to get the population just kind of simply buy in. You know, we're not, we're not here to hurt you guys. We're trying to help you guys. We're trying to rebuild you guys. It just takes time. Um, in hindsight, us trying to do our projects, so let's go help a girl's school over here, or this little school over here is not probably what we need to be working on at the time. We should have been heavily focused on the power plants, the sewage plants, the water treatment plants, just, just basic, basic life necessities for the people of Iraq. 
and we didn't do a good job of that early on in 2003, um, and that caused a lot of people to get um, upset that the Americans come to our country, you take it over, and now what you gonna do for us? You haven't done nothing for us, and it's it was a slow process. But now, if you look at Iraq today, we we have some relations with them. We are still having some soldiers over there uh, on some small fobs, but. Um, the Iraqis are now more able to take care of themselves, for the most part. They fought through ISIS um, and helped push ISIS back. Granted, had to have some American forces in there to help them out and advise them a little bit, but uh, at least they have shown they can still fight a um, insurgency within their own borders and not so much requiring American soldiers to come in and do a lot of it. Um, we got extended for three months, so I didn't leave until July the 1st, 2004. Um, and I, and, I, and I tapped out that time with the Army. I said, I'm done. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've done my four years. I'm going to do my last two in the Guard. And three months later, I'm joining with the South Carolina National Guard in Marion, South Carolina, as a company XO. And so that was, my, that was my transition to the Guard. And I'm seeing these noble eagle guys go out. I'm seeing just you know, our soldiers going to Iraq, our soldiers going to Afghanistan. And then, lo and behold, the 218th um, Enhanced Separate Brigade got orders to go to Afghanistan in 2008. Um, I'm sitting there holding my newborn daughter in the hospital. I get a call from um, the Lieutenant Baxley, the AO for the Army Battalion. Hey, uh, we're going to Afghanistan in three months, uh, and you're going. So I got my daughter, my wife's still asleep in the hospital bed. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to wait on that one for a few days before she finds out about that. Yeah. Um, but... So that was my second appointment to Afghanistan, uh, and the Guard's done phenomenal. Uh, they they adapt really well. They're not as well trained as at duty sometimes, but that's because we're restrained on how much training time we get as a reserve unit. But as we go through most sites and uh, XETCs, NTCs, they get better. And when they get in the country, they do a phenomenal job. And even our Guard soldiers have a unique set because they bring their civilian skills with them that sometimes active duty does not have. You might be a carpenter on the side, and you can build stuff when you get over there and improve your fob. You might be an electrician, a plumber, um, just a myriad of things that we can bring in. You might be a PA, but you might be a specialist infantryman running around somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that was that was, that was a lot of information uh, covered. I'm, I'm going to back you way back up in the sure. discussion. Um, so back to 9-11, and you, you were in Germany. You said you hadn't been in Germany but a year at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for us that were stateside, and I, I actually wasn't in the military as of yet uh, during this, but, you know, we were watching this stuff live. So there was this whole sense, I guess, of anxiety and panic and surrealism. Was this actually really happening? But with y'all in a whole different country, half the world away, and you, you talked about the delays and stuff, how were you and the soldiers, I guess, reacting? You mentioned some you know, everybody's a little confused and they were trying to figure out what was actually going on. But, you know, obviously it's, it's got to be a little bit different feeling being so far away from it. It, it really was. Um, for the most soldiers, it was, I hate to say this, but more irritation trying to get on post than anything else because they were so disassociated with it. Um, so the most soldiers didn't have AFN in the rooms. They didn't have, you know, internet was still rude in 2001. So no live streams or anything. It took me three days before I even saw the videos of the towers falling down. Wow. So yeah. I had no, no, really no concept of how big of a magnitude this was really going on stateside. Um, uh, Stars and Stripes, which shows, you know, gave us the pictures of it. That was probably my first, like, wow, that, that's a big plane that actually hit that 
And here's a picture of the second plane hitting it. Um, but we had a few soldiers who did have family members who were stationed in the Pentagon or um, even a few who had family members, unfortunately, at the World Trade Center. So the um, division and USRA made plans to get them back stateside whenever we could because, you know, for a few days, no planes were really flying around America uh, until yeah. they sorted everything out. But the, it was a lot of just, what do we do now? Okay, now we're doing force protection. What does that mean for us? I mean, just all I know is I got a long line to get into the front gate, and it's and it stayed that way for a long time. Um, that's yeah, I mean that's an interesting perspective because yeah. you know it's interesting to see. You know, we were all I wasn't at the time, but you were in, yeah. Yeah, actually, I had just gotten out about three weeks before nine uh, okay. eleven happened. Wow. I had gotten out at the end of August. And so for me, you know, my first understanding of this was, like I said, I was, had just gotten out of the regular army and got a call from my sister telling me, have, you, have I looked at the news that morning? I went and flipped it on. And, you know, of course, my immediate reaction is, you know, oh, my gosh, this is kind of really happening. This, you know, this, this is a, can't be something that's going on. And so one of my first concerns, of course, was, was for my family. So with you being in Germany, uh, did you have any, any family there with you or back here at the States that, that you were kind of concerned about? How, how, what was your thoughts and feelings on that? Um, I was a single soldier in Germany. Uh, did not even have a fiance or girlfriend. I was just living the bachelor life. <laughs> I did have a twin brother stationed in Germany with me. He was in a different brigade. Um, but of course, parents are always going to be worried about their kids in the military, and they're going. To, my, my mom's friendly calling me, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" I say, "Yeah, I'm fine. I just, you know, what's going on back home? I don't know anything. I'm just hearing this AFN. The guys are being hardcore, trying to stay up 24 hours, and report to us. But that's the radio, and that was all we had. And then maybe delayed news footage from CNN or something else. But we just. Uh, Soldiers could only get the information from the five members back home for the most part, um, and really kind of grasp the magnitude of what 9-11 was, was going on. Um, didn't really know a lot about the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. We just knew the Pentagon was hit and the World Trade Centers were hit. Yeah. And we don't know really who did it yet. And you know, that, that, that's another interesting point, and I think that for especially for like younger soldiers that have come in kind of past this time, or even one, especially ones that have come in in the last couple of years, the flow of information is very much different. Um, you know, even when I found out I was home, I was not in the military as of yet, but I didn't, I didn't pull up a cell phone and like check out what was going on. There was no Facebook or feed or anything like that. I was getting phone calls from family members saying, hey, are you near a television or are you in the car with a radio like listen to this? And so there was a whole evolution of that, and, and then the whole fact that the, the whole, uh, you mentioned CNN and the news cycle folks, but I mean, that was one of the first big times um, that we started this whole coverage of the military kind of 24-7 thing that yeah. kicked off. Now, did y'all have to, was that something new for y'all once y'all actually got in country that y'all had to deal with maybe a little bit different than what y'all trained for, I guess, kind of the, the media coverage and, and everything that was going on with it? Um. We had no communications once we got into Iraq, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> I mean, you had young E-4s running around trying to find these satellite phones and spend a dollar a minute on time just call their, call their little girlfriend back in Germany somewhere. I didn't talk to my mom and dad for two months once I was deployed in there. Just, it was, you, they did have a phone center, I'll take that back, but you had to wait in line two and a half hours to make that phone call because everybody else wanted to let the family members know. 
and there's four phones in his phone booth, and so you're sitting there in a lounge chair in the desert heat trying to <laughs> trying to call back home, say, I'm okay, this, this is where I'm at. So we, letters became more important at that time, and that was about the only means of communication. Um, even through that whole first deployment for me in Iraq, I would call my parents or maybe once a month uh, just or let them know I was okay. Mostly it was through some emails. So we could That was probably more of a faster means to communicate. But, you know, if you're like me, I had old parents. I had to teach them how to get an email account and say, okay, this is how you do it. This is how I'm going to write you guys and just respond back. Oh, by the way, don't make very, very long messages because it takes me forever to download them sometimes. Don't, yeah. Don't send pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't say that was still at a point in time where people still had to listen to dial tones on some of their internet. Yeah, exactly. Not everything was high speed and 100 megabytes, this and that. And that was one. AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah, you got mail. All right. Outstanding. Um, I'm so happy to hear from AOL. Um, but yeah, I mean, and but that's something that you've obviously seen since your time in as, as progressed and evolved. You mentioned the evolution of a military over 19 years. And this is something else that's obviously that's evolved with it and how we socially interact. I mean, um, you know, not because they're not as tough or, or as hardcore as our, our prior soldiers, but when you have something that's the norm where you can get deployed overseas and you can Skype back in with your family and all that kind of stuff or whatever on a semi-regular basis, it makes the time easier when you're it making does. a phone call once every two months or something like yeah, that. It really does. And they can see you real time. And that just, you know, for family back home, that's all they want to see is just, just to know, are you okay? That's all I care about. And then, and pray that okay, you will have some offset reasons you can't say certain stuff on Skype. But like I'm gonna be going so and so 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 place to do this operation. Just I'll be out for a few days. So I'll call you when I get back. And that's the hard part for the families. Always waiting for that next phone call. Um, but soldiers are always grateful for any kind of support they get back home, whether it be a care package or even that just that one phone call to talk to somebody because. Just face it, you get tired of talking to your buddies sometimes, and you, and you <laughs> want to talk to somebody back up yeah. who, who loves you more than your buddy loves you. Yeah. But you care for her, and ultimately you will still wind up going back home at some point. Now, were you originally from South Carolina? Is that how you wound up here? I am. I'm born and raised in Union, South Carolina. Okay. Um, uh, once I graduated, I went to the University of Kentucky uh, through RTC scholarships and got my commission through RTC. Okay. So I'm not a Citadel alumni. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're still here. I'm that's, still that's, here. That's, that's, that's all that matters. So. I'm here, and my twin brother's still on active duty at Fort Bragg. Oh, okay. So I get to talk to him sometimes on what that duty is doing, here's what the guard's doing. Yeah. And we argue about who's better. So how long do you have in the guard now? Um, in the guard, I have about 15 years. Uh, total service is 19 and a half years. So, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> So what are you going to do when you hit that 20? Um, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a technician, so um, I will probably still stay around a few more years and just um, see, kind of see where, where life takes me. Um, is First goal is get to that 20, and then you can make some other decisions once you get that letter at 20 years. But it's, I've had a blast being in the Guard. I've met a lot of great soldiers throughout the years, a lot of great leaders, NCOs, and I keep joking with my, my master sergeant, my office master sergeant Turner, is like, you just look around, it's like, well, you see these young lieutenants and you see the mistakes that they'll make, and you realize, you know, I've I went through those growing pains as well, but as, as senior NCOs and senior 
you might have that E4 who's been in the Army for 40 years in the National Guard. He's still going to have some knowledge that he can <laughs> So I, I fall into that realm. <laughs> but there's just knowledge base all around, and it's always um, – the Guard is more of a tight-knit family because these are your neighbors you're serving with. These are your community members you're serving with. And once again, soldiers being taken away, mama's back home and leaving the family for, for a week or two, and she's handling all the day-to-day routine of – uh, activities of the, running the household. She may not be there to pick kids up. She has to do more. So it's always rough whenever soldiers get caught up. Whatever kind of duty they're doing, you know, whether it be these sad duties for hurricanes, flooding, or uh, uh, a longer deployment for a year. Well, um, you know, I, super interesting story. And uh, obviously we can see how it did affect your life. Uh, you wind up coming to the Guard. Um, from it, you know, the, yeah, it. yeah, and so, uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule and your day stopping by and talk with us. Uh, excellent story, very well spoken to. Uh, for the people who were listening, if you didn't hear our interaction a whole lot, there wasn't really a whole lot of need for interaction, he kind of just had it, so we just let it be his show. Um, but uh, you're always welcome to come back anytime that you want, and uh, we appreciate it, and thank you, sir. Maybe next time we talk about what's like shooting a, a tank. And that's the fun part of the army. Yeah, we could do that. Definitely. Yeah. I know some people would like to go out and maybe shoot a tank. If you know any people who <laughs> maybe let them pull a trigger. It's one of the few things they haven't done in the army so far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might be able to make that happen when the battalion gets back. Yeah, all right. They're deployed right now. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll wait. Our prayers. So listen to the podcast. Remember, when you get back, give us a call. Uh, we'll appreciate it. So yeah, thank Norman, you. I appreciate your time today to let me come in and tell the story. Yes, sir. Thank you. Enjoy spending time with you, sir. Thank you.